Welcome to Necessary Illusions. I am your host, MC Squared. On this episode of the podcast, I interview Stephen J. Karp, PhD, Steve. He is a professor, a physical therapist, a clinical scientist, researcher, and he's also very big into community involvement and poverty reduction. We have a great discussion today on a number of different topics. I hope you enjoy Solidarity Forever. He's a researcher, and he's also the chair with the APTA Ethics Committee. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, let's let's get right into higher education. So um, you, you kind of had a first job, right? A first career as a physical therapist, and you worked your way all the way up to uh, a director of a hospital. So maybe we'll get into some healthcare stuff, but you kind of changed gears. You did a PhD uh, and you got into academia. So talk about your, um, you know, kind of career change, being mainly a clinician and even an executive, you know, in a, in a leadership role in healthcare and kind of changing gears and getting to, getting into education. What brought that about? Oh, you're exactly right. Uh, thank you for asking. Uh, so I started off as a physical therapist and I was working in uh, an acute care hospital. After about a year, I decided I wasn't sure this is what I wanted to do. Uh, I wanted to be a physical therapist, but I wasn't sure hospital-based was what I wanted. So I dropped my hours down by half and took a job with a friend in a private practice. Worked with him for about a year. He was hoping I would buy into the practice, but I wasn't a businessman. So I left the private practice and did home care while I was still working in the hospital. Did home care for a year while I was working part-time at the hospital. and realized home care was what, was what I, I did not want to do also. And at that time, the hospital contacted me and asked me to uh, return full time as director of clinical education to build up the student program. So I resigned the position with home care, went back to the hospital full time and uh, very quickly got promoted to assistant director of the program, then director. And then our hospital began to purchase other hospitals. And eventually I was named vice president of rehabilitation services. After another year or two, uh, I was promoted out of that to vice president of quality and compliance for the hospital. So I was completely out of physical therapy and working on accreditation uh, standards and also trying to improve surgical and medical services within the hospital. So it was, it was an interesting job and uh, I really enjoyed it. At that point, our hospital's financial picture was not doing really well. And uh, in comes a combination not-for-profit and for-profit consortium, which purchased the hospital and all the other hospitals and clinics that we owned. 
uh, it was a unique uh, ownership that it was half not-for-profit and half for-profit. The not-for-profit side controlled the medical care and the for-profit side controlled the budgeting. Uh, it was an experiment that unfortunately uh, did not work out, which I'll get into. When there is a hostile takeover such as that, most employees at the vice president level and above get laid off, and I was fully anticipating getting cut. To my surprise, when I got called into the corporate office, they offered me the job as interim CEO of the corporation, of the hospital corporation in Philadelphia, which I took. I just thought it would be an interesting challenge. But after being in that job for just a few months, I realized I could do the job, but I didn't like the job. I got into healthcare because I enjoyed patient care. I enjoyed the clinical side. I enjoyed the research side. And suddenly I'm doing budgets. I'm hiring medical staff. Uh, I'm working with the board. I'm working with the community members and partnerships. I was uh, 43 years old and I was thinking like, what am I gonna do with the rest of my life? I was making more money than I ever thought I would make, but I really did not enjoy going to work. So I uh, started researching with my mentors uh, what should I do with the rest of my life? Um, and a couple of them said that, you know, consider academia, going back to school and getting a PhD. Um, so I set my sights on that, talked to my wife and my kids, and they agreed to support me through it. So I enrolled in a PhD program in motor control. Uh, it was a very difficult four years working full time as interim CEO of the hospital and going to school full time. Certainly was a challenge. But I finished my PhD and was immediately uh, offered a job at a large R1 university, Research One University in Philadelphia, which I took. And I happily, happily resigned from the hospital at that point. My salary was cut by 75% going into academia, big salary cut. Uh, but I really enjoyed it. Uh, I, the position I took was director of admissions. Uh, I also taught a little bit in the PhD program and I was a faculty member in the Doctor of Physical Therapy program. I did that for 10 years, really enjoyed it, but the commute was getting to me. It was about an hour and 15 minutes each way. And when a uh, similar position opened up at a local university to my home, uh, I took it. And um, so I've been really enjoying academia. I split my day between teaching, research, and service activities. Uh, and you also do um, director of admissions, right? Is that your, your new role at uh, the current um, university that you work? Um, so you are kind of the face of the university, bringing in new students and trying to recruit for the program. Is that right? Yeah, I, I help out with that. Yes, certainly. Uh, and it, it, I really enjoy doing that because uh, there are a lot of students out there who want physical therapy as a career. Um, but uh, as you may know, the getting into healthcare is certainly a challenge. The path is not, is, is not a vector, it's not a straight vector. There's a lot of hurdles that must be met before someone is accepted into a entry level medical profession program. Are you uh, tenure track? Is that, is that the, the route that you went? I know there's a lot of different positions within the university. Did you do like a tenure type program or do you have tenure there? No, I do. I, I elected not to do tenure. Uh, and, and the reason for that is that the rules for tenure and non-tenure are different at every university. And at the university that I'm working with, uh, once you're tenured, there's no advancement in salary. So if I remain non-tenured, 
uh, I can get um, a contract which approves salary increases. So uh, if you're tenured, certainly you, you can, unless you commit murder, uh, you're, you're there for life, where my contract has to be renewed every three to five years. And certainly if they are, they're unsatisfied with my work, they can let me go. But yet the benefits and salary are a little bit better. Yeah, I, I, I've talked to, I've had researchers on and, uh, you know, members of the academic community, professors and whatnot. Uh, I like to talk about this. Like, I think um, it's a good thing, you know, to have stability, to know, um, you know, when you go to bed at night, you know, you're going to have a job the next morning. So it's definitely, um, it's definitely, it's nice to have that stability to know, you know, unless you commit some sort of serious crime, you're going to have a job. No doubt, you know, there's salary, um ramifications, I guess, with this other uh, tract that you selected uh, and apt for. But um, yeah, what do you think about like the tenure system generally? I think there's a lot of attack um, with with tenure trying to cut down, um, you know, tenured professors in, in colleges. Um, there's definitely a uh, an education, uh, you know, student debt crisis in America. The cost of education is going up. Um, and, you know, some people on maybe on the right uh, attack the tenure um, I guess institution uh, is you know sometimes these professors get tenure and maybe they get lazy or whatever the argument is. But I, I think of it as a stability thing. Um, you know, you have stability. You can you you can make um, you know uh, difficult. Um, you can you can say things and challenge the establishment a little bit. You know, when you have tenure, whereas maybe if you don't have tenure, you kind of have to walk a little bit of a fine line and not ruffle any feathers. So I think it gives. Um, professors maybe a little bit of academic freedom uh, and then I think I think all you know I think tenure should be expanded frankly uh, to all professions and improve stability some people maybe into right-wing economics think that um, you know a worker insecurity basically knowing not knowing if you're gonna have a job the next day is good for the economy because it keeps wages down but I reject that certainly uh, as I'm more into working class politics but I think um, tenure and stability should be expanded to all professions not just um, you know, university professors. Uh, and then I think what it does, you know, is the tenure system is attacked. And as costs of education keep going up, I know with my education, especially as an undergraduate, a lot of the times I had like um, PhD students, researchers, TAs, you know, teaching classes instead of tenured mm -hmm. professors. Uh, and I think the quality of the education goes down. I think that, uh, you know, I think tenure is a good thing. Uh, the academic freedom is a good thing. Stability is a good thing. And I think overall for the educational experience, having tenured professors um, teaching courses, even, you know, entry-level courses um, for undergraduates is a good thing. I think you're getting a lot better quality education. Certainly you're paying a lot for it. So what do you think generally about tenure? I'm sure there's arguments to, from the left and the right about tenure uh, in favor of it or against it. Um, what's kind of your perspective? Yeah, uh, uh, I, I think I totally agree with you that uh, the downside of tenure, of course, is that once someone gets tenure, uh, unless they commit murder, they're going to be there forever. And if they lose their motivation, uh, they, they can be a real burden on an academic program where they just are not trying anymore, don't attend meetings, don't do research anymore, and they just, they're just they there for 20, 30 years. But th that's the that's this very, very small minority. The real advantage of tenure is that uh, many universities are not only tuition-driven, they're research-driven that universities are centers of research and they obtain grants either from the National Institutes of Health or foundations or, pharma or, or the uh, private sector 
to do research. And universities hire professors for tenure track positions who are really good researchers and they nourish them through their growing stage and oftentimes provide to them free of charge wonderful laboratories where they can do their research. And in return, the expectation is those tenured professors will then go out and get grants, $1 million, $2 million, $10 million, $20 million grants to do research either for the NIH or for a public or a private sector group. And what the university does is charge a tax on that grant. So if I, if, if I were tenured, I would get a million dollar grant where I taught previously, the university would take 28% of that grant and put that money into the university, which would offset tuition costs and keep tuition down. So that uh, really great research universities have great names, but oftentimes their discounted rate of tuition is actually less than some of the smaller schools that are not well known because they have that, all that money from the research environment offsetting tuition costs. So you do uh, some research, is that right? What kind of, what kind of research are you working on? Uh, currently we're doing research in two distinct veins. Uh, we're doing research with Alzheimer's disease and we're looking at the effect of exercise on cognition and fall risk in persons with Alzheimer's disease. That uh, being in, in healthcare, you know that the medication treatment for Alzheimer's disease, there's two types of medication. There is uh, anticholinesterase inhibitors and also glutamate inhibitors, and neither of them have shown much promise long-term effect in the treatment of Alzheimer's disease. Both uh, have an efficacy duration of about two to three years before they no longer work, and then there's no medicine at all other than symptomatic medication. Our hypothesis was that exercise will increase blood flow to the brain and therefore help preserve some of the neurons that are uh, in the brain being destroyed by Alzheimer's disease. And also exercise will, by strengthening muscles, increasing range of motion, increasing endurance, increasing uh, somatosensory sense, uh, will decrease fall risk. And sure enough, that with as little as three hours of aerobic activity per week, the rate of cognition decline uh, is much less than in persons not exercising, and there's a much uh, smaller risk of falls in persons who exercise that don't. The challenge is, of course, as the Alzheimer's gets worse, is that it's very difficult to motivate these individuals to do three hours of aerobic activity that when the Alzheimer's is starting, they understand the benefits and, and comply with the exercise program. But if the disease worsens, uh, they just have no interest in exercising. It's certainly a challenge to do that. And the other uh, area of research that we're doing is looking at uh, different types of bias in entry-level healthcare students. Uh, bias can be either implicit or explicit. It's just uh, that we have some base beliefs about certain uh, certain variables such as weight, race, ethnicity, people who smoke cigarettes. Healthcare people are no different than anybody else. And we're looking at how those biases affect our clinical decision making. 
Yeah, I find that fascinating. I want to talk a little bit about some Alzheimer's, but let's stick with the uh, let's stick with the bias stuff. I actually just did some uh, continuing education courses. I am in healthcare on implicit bias. Uh, I'm also reading Carl Jung. Are you familiar with Carl Jung's work? Uh, he was a, uh, I, I think, a uh, disciple of Freud. He's into kind of um, psychology and really big into the. The subconscious. I find the subconscious fascinating. My favorite philosopher, probably Noam Chomsky, um, he talks a lot about um, consciousness. You know, there's a lot of uh, dedication to the discussion of consciousness. What is it defining it um, philosophically, scientifically? Um, but Carl Jung did a lot about the subconscious, things that we aren't even aware of. And what Chomsky mm-hmm. says about the subconscious is, um, yeah, there's a lot of emphasis right now on consciousness, but the subconscious, things that maybe don't even get to conscious um, awareness, you know, whether whether it's biases or thought processes, ideas, all that kind of stuff. That's going to be the next big area, maybe in the next 20 or 30 years. Um, what do you think about the subconscious biases, um, things that maybe we're not aware of? Is that is that interesting to you? And is, is the subconscious versus consciousness discussion philosophically interesting to you? Yeah, absolutely. Our research has shown that 80% of entry-level healthcare students have biases. We look at old versus young. They prefer treating younger people and they make different clinical decisions making for old or young if the clinical uh, histories are exactly the same. Uh, we also found that there's biases in entry-level healthcare related to race, race and ethnicity. Uh, entry-level healthcare people going through the same training will treat a person of Hispanic origin different from someone with, who is Caucasian. Uh, We also found that clinical decision-making varies, again, subconsciously with regard to weight. If the patient is overweight versus someone who has a very small BMI, uh, decisions are made differently, even though they should not be. And what's amazing is that the students are totally unaware of this bias. So what should we should what should be uh, done about this? So of of course there's biases and people, um, you know have um, an agenda, maybe they're aware of it, maybe they're not, um, what should be done about this? We should maybe try to educate people, try to make them aware, are there intervention strategies that we could uh, use to uh, address biases, and are we ethically um, obligated to kind of to kind of address it, I guess, as a, as a society, morally? Well, yeah, I, I certainly believe we are ethically required to do that. Uh, and in healthcare, I think we're really mandated to do that because, you know, our, our job is to get the best outcomes possible. And if we're making decisions based upon implicit bias that are incorrect, that's uh, ethically and academically an incorrect way of doing it. As part of our research, we're looking at interventions which will try to get entry-level students to realize these biases. And what we're hoping that once they realize that they have these biases, they'll be much more cogent at looking at their clinical decisions before they make them and ask themselves, am I making this decision because this patient is, because I have a a personal feeling about obesity uh, and am I treating this patient incorrectly or uh, uh, do I have a prejudice against individuals who may be older? So we're hoping to educate the students in identifying these biases within themselves and then retesting them to see if their clinical decision-making is more appropriate and consistent. Really cool stuff. So uh, let's let's make a transition. Your other research interest, Alzheimer's disease. It's a terrible, terrible uh, disease. Um, maybe we can uh, bring 
the listeners up to kind of what is it. Let's describe it a little bit. Uh, I, I, I am in healthcare, but by no means uh, am I an expert on um, Alzheimer's disease, dementia, although I see patient populations with those types of um, conditions. Um, you're a geriatric specialist, right? So is this something you deal with a lot? And can you maybe define uh, Alzheimer's disease, dementia, maybe compare and contrast a little bit? Okay. Uh, so dementia is the broad category. So people with decreased cognitive processes are considered to have dementia. Uh, and one of the subcategories, one of the types of dementia, and the most prevalent is Alzheimer's dementia, Alzheimer's disease. Alzheimer's disease was named after a researcher, Aloysius Alzheimer, back in the 1800s, who was the first to write a paper describing it. Uh, Alzheimer's disease, no one knows the cause of it. And it seems to be associated with an accumulation of beta amyloid plaque in the brain, uh, a chemical that should not be in the brain. Uh, so the pharmacology uh, that is being used to treat Alzheimer's is trying to decrease the concentration of that plaque. It's not really clear that the plaque is causing Alzheimer's disease, but it may be causing it. So the knowledge of Alzheimer's disease, the, the cause of it, the treatment with it is really in the early stages. Alzheimer's disease, again, is the most common form of dementia in the United States, and it is diagnosed by just the typical presentation of it and the lack of any other findings, such as abnormal CAT scan of the brain, abnormal blood work. All that is normal in Alzheimer's disease. When someone with Alzheimer's disease dies and the brain is looked at under a microscope, there are certain characteristics uh, in the brain showing the dying of the neurons, how the neurons in the brain die, which then confirms Alzheimer's disease. So technically, Alzheimer's disease cannot be confirmed until after death. But again, we're pretty sure that we, can, we know it when we see it. Um, Alzheimer's disease, there's actually three types of Alzheimer's disease. The first and most common type, 70% of people in the world who have Alzheimer's disease have age-related Alzheimer's disease. This is dementia that becomes obvious typically within the, the person reaches their 60s or 70s. That is the typical age of onset. Research has shown that the changes in the brain actually occur 10 years before symptoms appear. So Alzheimer's uh, probably starts in the 40s or 50s, but becomes apparent in the, in the 60s or 70s. And Alzheimer's just leads to decrease in ability of, of cognition, of ability to think and to remember and make decisions appropriately. Uh, initially, it may be something very mild uh, where the individual will, um, you know, people always say, do I have Alzheimer's disease because I can't find my keys, I keep losing them. That is not, you know, we all have memory problems and that's normal. If when you find your keys, you put them in the freezer, that might be suspicious of Alzheimer's disease. Uh, so it's just not normal forgetting. It's, it's aberrant behavior, which is worrisome. Uh, the behavior with Alzheimer's disease and the memory with Alzheimer's disease is, uh, is, is sporadic. Some things are preserved and some things are not preserved. My father-in-law, my blessed father-in-law, died of Alzheimer's disease, and it was very interesting watching him on a day-to-day -day basis that 
initially, there were just some memory issues, such as putting the keys in the freezer, or one day we were having breakfast with him and he put orange juice on his cereal instead of milk. These are not things that people who forget uh, tend to do. So we sent him for neurocognitive testing to see a neurologist, and the neurologist said that, again, um, we can't diagnose it without a biopsy of his brain, which we're not gonna do, but it looks like Alzheimer's disease. And from that point on, um, dad began just to worsen. Uh, and some areas of his memory and decision-making were perfectly fine. He never forgot my name. He always remembered my name for as long as he lived, but he forgot one of his son's names, which is really pretty interesting. Uh, he would remember how to shower. He could go into the bathroom, turn the shower on, get undressed, get into the shower, wash his body, but for some reason he forgot how to wash his hair. And my mother-in-law would have to wash his hair for him, rinse his head, and then he would get out of the shower and be able to get dressed, but he just couldn't remember, couldn't figure out how to use the shampoo. Very, very interesting type presentation. Um, the, the dementia typically worsens, um, and then what happens is that not only do they forget memory-wise and decision-making, but they forget motor tasks, how to do things such as how to walk, how to feed themselves, and the, the real problem is when uh, forgetting how to swallow. The only part of digestion that is volitional is swallowing. We control the swallow. And people with Alzheimer's disease forget how to swallow. So they put food into their mouths and just hold that food in their mouths until their mouths are filled and they just can't swallow anymore. And eventually some of that food will leak down into the trachea, into their lungs, leading to pneumonia, and that's the most common cause of death. The second time of, type of Alzheimer's disease, the first type was age-related, is early onset Alzheimer's disease. Early onset typically starts in the, the 20s and 30s decades. And what's interesting about that is that it's familial, that it's an autosomal, dominant gene that is passed on to children. Age-related Alzheimer's disease has a small genetic component, but there's no genetic testing for it. But early onset Alzheimer's disease, there is genetic testing. And if a person develops it, their children can be tested to see whether they're going to get it or not. Early Alzheimer's disease has about the same life expectancy, 15 to 20 years. So since it starts earlier, these people tend to die in their 50s. So that's about maybe 10 to 15% of the population with Alzheimer's have early onset. The third type of, I'm sorry. I was gonna, it sounds similar to Huntington's disease, right? Uh, if, you, if you've done any studies with that, isn't that called yeah. like the dancing disease or something like that? It's very genetic you can know um, if you're going to get it early on in life, but there's definitely some issues that might come of that. Like you can kind of know that you're not going to live a long life, you know, kind of definitely could be scary for people. Um, am, I, am I wrong here? This is definitely not an area of expertise of mine, uh, but just remember in grad school some stuff about Huntington's disease. Actually, I haven't seen any um, patients with it, but there's a big genetic component and you can kind of know early on whether or not you're going to get it. And again, that could be scary for people. Some people might not want to know and some people choose not to do the testing, right? Exactly right. My best friend's wife, uh, interestingly, died of Huntington's Korea. And um, before she realized she had the disease, her father passed away very young. 
and the disease never manifested itself with him before he passed away. So she had no idea that she had the gene. And apparently her grandfather died in Europe uh, uh, and her father was an immigrant to the United States. So she had no idea she had the gene and she and my best friend had two children. And those children uh, have to make a determination once they're 18, whether they wanna be genetically tested or not. Um, and they may wanna do it because you know, if they get married, they may want to, if they have the gene, not have children because it's such a, a challenging disease. And the same thing with early onset Alzheimer's. That's one of the benefits of genetic testing is that the individual can make the determination uh, if, if they do have the gene, do they want to risk that their child will have a 50% chance of getting the disease at age 30? And then the third type of Alzheimer's is called familial. And familial is uh, also uh, ability to be tested with genetic testing. Uh, and this is where there are large pockets within a family that the transmission rate of the gene is much higher. Uh, and these individuals, pretty much everybody in families have uh, developed Alzheimer's disease. And uh, there's one area of the world, Medellin, Colombia. You might have heard of Medellin. It's one, it was one of the big places in the 1990s and early 2000s for the cocaine trafficking in Colombia. That around 65% of the people in that city, uh, because there's a lot of intermarriage among families, have the Alzheimer's gene familial gene. That means 65% of that city will develop Alzheimer's disease. And what's interesting uh, from a pharmacological standpoint is that where, that's where pharmacological companies go to test their newer drugs uh, to try to prevent the expression of the gene because almost everybody has the gene in that, country, in that city. That's, that's what I'm coming uh, interested in. So uh, preventative, and I th I'm sure a lot of people would be, because once you have it, right, it's progressive. Uh, you gradually worsens um, until you have very limited um, cognitive function. Um, your, you know, your personality, I guess, changes. You're unable to do even basic motor uh, tasks. Um, I'm sure your uh, just ability to communicate with others, uh, memory, all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, you're who you are, I guess, kind of changes. And it's, it can be, I guess, scary for people uh, knowing that they have it and it's going to continue to get worse. So preventatively, I would say that's maybe the most interesting thing to me. Uh, I've thought about it too. Um, I'm a philosopher. I love philosophy. I study a lot of it, um, you know, outside of my, you know, uh, professional readings. And um, it seems like some of the, the great philosophers that I've um, read about and who I enjoy, uh, they live long lives and are very um, high and, and maintain very high levels of cognitive functioning, even later in life. My favorite philosopher, I name him probably every podcast, Noam Chomsky, he's 94 years old, still commenting and doing research and lectures on linguistics, geopolitics, cognitive science. So I aspire to be at 94 years of age um, as cognitively high functioning as, as Noam is. Um, but what do you think about preventatively? Maybe maybe some exercise and a healthy diet of studying philosophy. Uh, you think those things might help prevent uh, these types of um, cognitive decline and pathologies like dementia and um, specifically Alzheimer's disease? Is there is there any... Um, studies and research on ways to prevent uh, the d disease from manifesting? Uh, for Alzheimer's, probably not. Uh, that uh, exercise does not show to be shown to be preventive with any of the types of Alzheimer's. But what's really interesting is that a colleague of mine studied a uh, 
uh, a retirement home for priests in Philadelphia studied the members that their average age of death in that retirement home is in the mid to late 90s. And his question was, why do these people live so long compared with the normal population where the in Philadelphia that men typically live to be about 78 years old? So why, you know, the, the 100 people in this residence, are they living so long? And what his summary was is that they're still working, that these priests work eight hours a day at a job uh, and there's no retirement for them. And most of them are academics. Most of them are PhDs who are retired and they work on translations from French to English, English to French, French to Spanish. They do that. They write blogs. Uh, I do some volunteer work there as a uh, as a healthcare person. And it's really pretty amazing how computer literate these guys are, too, in their mid to late 90s. You know, they're asking me questions about Excel and access and, um, you know, advanced computer graphics and just the, the you're exactly right. Keeping the mind active is probably the best way to prevent age related dementia. I, uh, I remember this from an undergraduate course. Um, this is all from memory now, but I think there was like some village in Italy, I want to say, um, uh, centurions, right? People over 100 years of age. Am I saying that correct, correctly? So, yeah, I think it was like the, the highest concentration of centurions uh, in the world. There's some village uh, in Italy on the Mediterranean Sea, um, a small village. I think they ate a lot of like healthy fruits and vegetables, fish. Um, they didn't walk or they walked a lot. They didn't have like a lot of transportation, use of cars, like a lot of bikes in the village, a lot of walking in the village. Um, you know, they, they, I think they, um, they read a lot. Uh, they had good community. Um, they had great weather. Um, and, uh, yeah, for some reason, this tiny little village in the world, um, you know, has more centurions than anywhere else. And I'm just thinking like, yeah, maybe it's just a holistic approach, you know, walk a little bit, exercise, read, be part of the community, have a healthy diet, fruits, vegetables, fish, um, that kind of stuff. Uh, but yeah, I think, you know, I kind of dabble in between Western philosophy and Eastern philosophy and Eastern is kind of like, you know, everything's cyclical, everything's connected past, present and future is one. And sometimes in the sciences, we try to tease out, you know, little variables like, you know, maybe it's this and not that maybe it's that and not this. But, you know, sometimes I, I like the lifestyle medicines, you know, living a holistic life, you know, with a sense of purpose, exercise, being part of a community, talking with people, reading, challenging yourself cognitively, um, all that kind of stuff um, seems to be what these people in this small village in uh, Italy had going on, I guess, for them. And what's really interesting about that is I, I'm aware of that. I can't think of the village's name in Italy that you're talking about. There was an interesting follow-up study. I'm not sure if you read this, but there were researchers who looked at all the cities in the United States to find out which one had the, lo the longest life expectancy. And it was a very small town located about 30 miles north of Allentown, Pennsylvania, on the central eastern side of Pennsylvania. That town had the highest life expectancy in the, in the mid-90s of all towns in the United States. And it turns out the residents of that town were primarily descendants of that same city that you were discussing in Italy, wow. that many of them emigrated to the United States and lived there. And they found that there were a lot of characteristics that were associated with the town in Pennsylvania, with the town in Italy. And one of them, as you described, was community involvement. 
the average member of the uh, town in Pennsylvania belonged to four community organizations that they would go out every night and do, you know, there was the Elks Club or some other club, just the, the, the society, the service, the social interactions, uh, doing things that were good, uh, holistic, uh, might, certainly one of the variables that is important from a life expectancy. And it also, the researchers uh, found that it would, there was probably some genetic component associated with it also. And kind of the diagnostics of Alzheimer's disease, very similar to the Supreme, uh, Supreme Court's definition of pornography. I wanted to make that little quip. Uh, we know it when we see it kind of thing, right? Exactly right. That's a very good point. Yeah. Uh, interesting. So um, let's, let's transition a little bit here. We talked about long life. Uh, I think it's a terrible thing right now. Life expectancy is actually declining in the United States all while um, you know, it's going up all around the world. Um, we're getting a lot of diseases of despair, like suicide and depression, that kind of stuff. Um, not a good thing. Certainly, there was a great um, opportunity for, um, I think, a universal healthcare system. The United States is the only um, country in the world without a, a universal healthcare model. Um, we have Medicare. Uh, it seems to work very well for uh, our aging populations, I think it's a great thing. It should be expanded. I'm all for Medicare for all. I think the VA system works very well for the vets. Uh, they made a lot of sacrifices. I think they have a pretty good healthcare system. It's not perfect, certainly. Um, but yeah, I, I think that you know the government has an obligation. You know, I think healthcare is a human right. Um, you know, I think that you know food is a human right, even though unfortunately the United States government and Israel government, I think it was like a 198 to two in a vote uh, that said that food is not a human right. I disagree with that. I I am on board with the rest of the countries in the world that think you know um, you know food is a human right. But let's talk about the healthcare system. You have been a clinician. You've been an executive. What do you think about just generally um, the healthcare model? I've said this a lot. I mean, it's definitely um, you know propaganda more than anything, but I think it's true. I don't think the United States has a functioning healthcare system. I think it has a national scandal. The number one cause of uh, um, uh, what's the when you go bankrupt bankruptcy. Number one cause of bankruptcy is directly related to some sort of medical emergency here in the United States. Medical bankruptcy is a term not known anywhere else in the world. I mean, there's two ways to you know provide universal health care. What you could do is have like an insurance program like universal health care and Medicare for all, um, but that would just be like a universal payer model, right? The government could also provide health care services similar to, you know, Britain uh, and, and with the NHS. So, um, you know, like similar to that VA model, it could be everywhere, all over the local communities and that kind of stuff. So generally, though, like I, I'm in, I'm, I'm a, uh, I am in healthcare, and I think um, many of the conflicts of interest that I have are tied to, you know, reimbursement. How much can we get for services? Um, sometimes, like, I think holistic medicine and just the conversation can be a lot more beneficial than some pharmacological, you know, pharmacological drug, you know what I mean? So a conversation about, you know, the benefits of diet, exercise, being in, uh, being a part of a community, that sort of stuff. But unfortunately, you don't get re good reimbursement for a 15-minute uh, conversation on the benefits of diet, exercise, community involvement, all those sorts of things that are beneficial that maybe sometimes people forget about. So uh, generally, I'm long-winded and go off on tangents all the time. Uh, but I have a big problem with the with the healthcare system in the United States. Again, COVID was a great opportunity, you know, to kind of force through some legislation to provide healthcare for the 30 plus million Americans that don't have it. 
Um, you were living and working in Temple, or I'm sorry, for Philadelphia, Temple University. That has a, that's a hospital every year that has millions of dollars every year, right, that they have to write off because of uninsured people uh, in low-income areas that, you know, have health problems. Um, maybe you could talk about just the healthcare system generally. And I also have a, um, just an interesting question on, I guess, the um, – you know the how, how the accounting works, right? So, like, if someone doesn't have a doesn't have healthcare and they have to come into the emergency room, they can't be denied. But a lot of times they get the bill, right? I'm, I'm sure it's sent to their home. Sometimes it's sent to collections, that kind of stuff. So that all interests me. I remember, um, you know, reading an article about you know the millions and millions of dollars each year that um, these urban uh, hospitals have to write off. Um, you know, because of, you know, uninsured people. So, uh, again, I'm, I'm going all over the place. But what just generally do you think about the healthcare system in the United States, a for-profit model, a model where, um, you know, 30-plus million people are uninsured, and uh, the number one cause for bankruptcy in the United States is a healthcare emergency? What would say you from a, you know, from a 20,000 feet uh, overhead perspective of the system generally? Just because you've, you've worked in it and been a part of it. He did a really nice job summarizing it, and I think we're really in alignment with this. Uh, you know, just some statistics to throw out. The United States spends more per person for health care than any other large Western democracy. And in fact, we spend nearly twice as much per person as the next highest spending country, which is Belgium. The United, spends, the United States spends about $8,000 per person uh, the United States, $8,000 per person for health care. Belgium is around 3700 All the other countries, England, France, Japan, Canada, Germany, spend less than $3,500 per person per year for health care. And what's really amazing is that every one of those countries has better outcomes for health care than we do. Looking at the basic health care outcomes such as lifespan, the United States is actually currently 76th in lifespan uh, in the world. Countries like Croatia and Slovenia and South Africa, their citizens live longer than Americans do. Americans are currently 35th in infant mortality, that more babies die per, per representation of the population in the United States than in Cuba. Then in Venezuela, war-torn Venezuela, a baby has a greater chance of living than in the United States. So again, the irony is we're spending more money, but our outcomes are worse. And we in healthcare are always saying, like, where does the money go? Like, why isn't it going for patient care? I can tell you where the money goes. It, it goes to uh, CEOs and executives of these health insurance companies. I saw some of these people are making $20, 30000000 million a year. And that's just the top. I mean, there's layers and layers of management. One problem with Obamacare is it didn't go far enough. It was basically a giveaway to private insurance firms to kind of get – dip in the government pool of money, you know what I mean? It was basically a watered-down, privatized, um, you know, uh, initiative. I mean, it was a good thing to expand healthcare for people in need, but not to privatize it. Yeah, at least that's what I think. And you did mention Cuba here. I have a statistic on them. United States spends, I'm sorry, Cuba spends 4% uh, of the U.S. expenditures per capita on healthcare with about the same outcomes. The United States has a higher cost 
uh, I think more than two times any other industrialized country in the world with the absolute worst outcomes of the industrialized countries of, you know, the rich countries, essentially Japan, um, Europe, uh, South Korea, Australia, Canada, the United States. Out of all those countries, the U.S. is the last. Uh, two points to make. First, uh, when Medicare and Medicaid was enacted following the 1964 Medicare and Medicaid Act by President Johnson, suddenly that large cohort of Americans age 65 and older, uh, those with disabilities and those on renal dialysis, and also Medicaid, those that were poor, suddenly had insurance. And when that was enacted a year later, America had the highest life expectancy and the lowest infant mortality of any country in any country in the world. Those two programs were, were and continue to be extremely effective. Unfortunately, the other insurance companies have caused problems. We in America sometimes think that building bigger and better hospitals are the answer. In Philadelphia, uh, one of the best hospital systems was where I work, Temple University Healthcare System. If we look at Philadelphia, this is an interesting statistic. If we look at where Temple is in Philadelphia and the town of Bryn Mawr, which is just outside of Philadelphia, it's only 10 miles away. Bryn Mawr has a hospital and where Temple is, Temple's neighborhood has Temple, which is a world-renowned medical center. You would think that two areas 10 miles apart, both with wonderful academic medical centers, would have the same life expectancy of the citizens around them. But for every mile of the 10 miles you walk from Bryn Mawr to Temple, life expectancy drops one year. So it's not about the flash and glitter of the hospitals. It's about the social determinants of health. And one of those is insurance and access to health care. You might live next door to a hospital, but if you don't have insurance or if you don't have health literacy, you can't access those. And this is where some of the other countries do much better than we do. Yeah, I mean, and health literacy, I think that goes into education. Um, maybe we can transition to that a little bit. But the United States also has a $2 trillion student debt crisis. Uh, actually, a Republican president, Trump, um, put a pause on the um, student uh, debt um, you know, payments for, I guess, four years. The United States, you know, owns the debt. They don't need the debt. Um, but for whatever reason, uh, politically, certainly, and for maybe purposes of class warfare, a Democrat... Uh, Joe Biden, who has said he was on the campaign trail, is going to uh, cancel $10,000 of debt, and then I think $50,000 of debt, and I think so far it's zero. I mean, the uh, actually when he went into office, I mean, everything got shut down, certainly by the right-wing Supreme Court, the reactionary Supreme Court, and, you know, the well-funded Republican lawsuits from the red states. Certainly there was uh, political barriers, uh, but he could have used his power uh, over the Department of Education to cancel it with a swipe of a pen, but he did not choose to do so again i think for political reasons and reasons for class warfare um there's a big um short shortfall in military recruitment and i think that's one of the reasons as to why they don't want to those in power i say they don't want to offer you know ed education in the united states for uh free or a significantly reduced cost because for um recruitment for the military that's one of the benefits the united states and the, the gi bill led the world um in public education um for decades until maybe the 1980s and reagan and the deregulation of the financial system and now i think for many americans 
Americans, um, the, 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 the American dream, um, to quote George Carlin, they call it the American dream because you got to be sleeping to believe it, you know, that sort of thing. You got to be dreaming. Um, but, um, you know, the, uh, the, the American dream, you know, getting a, a good job, um, buying a house, getting college, um, getting a college degree, affording a college. Um, you know, they do it pretty much everywhere else in the world, affordable college, free or nearly free college, pretty much any, every other country in the world. But in the United States, it's tens of thousands of dollars. If you want to go on and get a master's degree, uh, a law degree, uh, a medical degree, you know, you're looking at maybe hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt, a lifetime of debt, and it's extremely cruel. Uh, this, this debt is something that you can't, claim bankruptcy for it follows you for life it's a it's a lifelong debt trap for many uh, i've even heard social security is garnished to pay off your student loans so it's a very cruel twi- twisted system so part of that healthcare literacy you know and people of uh, lower socioeconomic status perhaps they're not getting you know a good education they're certainly um, you know, less likely to get a college degree if you come from a lower socioeconomic background um, but generally what do you think about you know the rising costs of uh, a college degree, degree inflation. You know, there were professions out there that you could get entry-level jobs um, with a bachelor's degree. Now those are requiring master's degrees. They were master's professions, you know, and now they're requiring doctor doctorate degrees. So it's kind of what I like to call the manufacture of consent. Um, you know, these colleges can charge pretty much whatever, and people are going to pay it. And the, and the costs of tuition continue to rise and, and rise. They have monopolistic pricing rights. I say they is like colleges and universities. They're offering these degrees. And again, they can pretty much, <laughs> there's, there's decades of history that says they can keep raising prices and students are going to pay it. Uh, although I think um, the popularity of college degrees, I think it's, I think it's going down a little bit. And, um, you know, these, these um, salaries have not keep, uh, been keeping pace with inflation. we got a cost of living crisis right now. Uh, I think average rural wage, so um, wages factored, or I guess wages um, when you factor in inflation, are about the same levels as they were in the late 1970s or early 1980s. So for much of America, we're seeing a treadmill economy where we're not going anywhere fast. Uh, although, um, you know, wealth inequality is uh, skyrocketing. There's, you know, I think a couple people in this world, uh, a handful of people, uh, the billionaires, maybe Jeff Bezos and um, Bill Gates and Elon Musk, like three or four, a handful of these people own as much wealth as the bottom 50 combined, which is incredible. So we're kind of in the new gilded age. And again, I do my famous roundabout and off on tangents, but I want to go back to education and the American dream. A lot of people have been priced out of the American dream. Why do you think that is um, that, you know, K through 12, most people are all in favor of public education. But for some reason, when you get to higher education, um, you know, or a master's degree or a professional degree, um, you know, the, the onus is on that, the individual. Uh, people in America, everywhere else in the world, again, most other countries provide free or nearly free college. But in America, if you think, uh, if you say something like college could be free, should be free, people look at you like you're the ghost of Karl Marx. So what say you about, again, rising costs of education and the American dream? And a lot of people are, have been priced out of the American dream of going to college, getting a good job and, you know, buying a house, that kind of stuff. Yeah, we both like George Carlin, so I'm going to reference him. George Carlin states that the rich have the money and the education, and they, they keep that by keeping the middle class afraid of the poor. 
so the middle class keeps their foot on the poor by preventing education and preventing wealth. Uh, I am a firm believer that the Declaration of Independence was written uh, with the right frame of mind that all men are created equal. It should have been all men and women are created equal. But you know, certainly it is not in the United States right now that the rich can get the health care, the rich can get quality education. They're not worried about debt. Uh, they have the good jobs. And in the United States, insurance is tied to your job for most individuals. So they're not the least bit worried about that. So the, the, the poor are trying to get out of generational poverty by going to college, and they're the ones that are racking up this huge amount of debt, uh, which they can never pay off. And, and then they're just saddled with this, with this debt the rest of their life. It just, it, it rankles me to no end how the poor are used to support the rich in this country. It also creates an endless cycle, right? So if you're spending your entire life trying to pay off college debt, I'm, uh, I'm almost 40 years old. I'm still paying off my undergraduate degree right now. I don't have either of my degrees. I got a couple degrees. I don't have either of them paid off. I'm almost 40 years old. Um, but it also, so I'm not planning on having kids anytime soon. Uh, it, it, because of my student debt, um, I was unable to buy a house until later in life. I haven't had kids. I haven't gotten married. I kind of put my life on pause. I know some people with college debt do that. But for me, you know, that I, I was kind of more so um, wanting to get on a pathway to debt reduction. And I have been, but I still got a long way to go. But it kind of puts your life on hold a little bit. And this student loan pause was a great thing for me personally. Uh, and I want to also mention that, that sometimes when you have personal experience, it allows you to kind of understand things a lot better. So like maybe with your story about Alzheimer's disease, you know, researching it is one thing, but actually seeing it every day in your life it kind of hits home a little bit more and helps you kind of maybe provide a more uh, a better understanding of it all. But uh, for me, and the student debt crisis is start is part of the reason that radicalized me politically. Uh, but yeah, if you're having a lifelong, if it's taking you a lifelong um, process to pay off your college debt, you know, the debt you took out when you were a teenager, that creates an endless cycle because number one, you might not be able to, you know, maybe, maybe you're start starting a family and maybe that, those plans are put on hold. Buying a house is put on hold. Maybe you never buy a house. So a lot of people are, uh, a lot of people, at least in my generation, millennials, I think like half are still living at home right now. Uh, and and as, as the cost of living crisis that we're in, costs of homes continue to be on the rise, even as uh, interest rates are skyrocketing. I got lucky, um, but uh, yeah, a lot of people aren't so lucky. Um, but yeah, this endless cycle where you are trying to pay off your debt, um, your student debt from, again, when you took out loans when you're a teenager, um, that's also going to, you know, again, put your life on hold, but also probably going to um, hinder your ability to save for retirement. And you're probably not going to be able to save money to get your um, son or daughter, your child, uh, to help start a college fund for them. So they're probably going to go to college and they're going to have to do the same thing, you know. So it's kind of this endless cycle of poverty and people are never able to escape it. Uh, I'm quoting this from memory, but I think it's about right. I think the United States is 37th on socioeconomic mobility scale. So basically, you know, if you start poor, what's the chances you can get to middle class? If you start middle class, what's the chance for you to get wealthy? Not very good. I mean, most countries in Europe, it's a lot higher. Uh, I think you mentioned Croatia. I, be, I believe Croatia is higher than the United States as well. Again, we're told this farcical fairy tale about the American dream. 
Um, if, there, if that was true, the United States would be number one. It'd be easy to, you know, kind of move up the socioeconomic income scale, but it's not. It's very difficult. Uh, and the United States, at least in theory, I, I like some of the founding father stuff. I love uh, Thomas Jefferson, although he owned slaves, he owned literally people. So when you read his philosophies, you got to understand that, that when he meant all men are created equal, he meant white men, <laughs> that sort of thing. So, uh, but anyways, um, you know, I think a lot of his stuff, though, about the economy, about politics, he, he was all for a revolution and changing things. He, um, he was very uh, lucid about the moneyed financial institutions. He said if they ever took control of power in society, the, the revolution would be uh, – we, we would have lost. And they, those financial institutions in Wall Street are stronger um, than ever. But, um, yeah, I totally think that, um, you know co- – Education is, is a very valuable, um, you know, component of society, and it, it should help you, um, you know, it should be a good thing, you know, to kind of learn and to kind of grow and define your career and your profession. I don't think it should be, um, you know, a lifelong debt. And, uh, yeah, these people in this lifelong cycle and how difficult it is to get out of, um, it perpetuates itself. And I think um, I'm sure you see that a lot uh, having worked in maybe an urban hospital is um, people in these poor neighborhoods and these socioeconomically low-income neighborhoods, it's just kind of this cycle that's almost impossible to get out of. And part of what you um, – part about your community outreach is you are trying to essentially um, – effectiveness of non-government policy of the poor. So maybe we can talk about that a little bit and just generally maybe what you've seen uh, in kind of your outreach and trying to address um, extreme poverty in the country. So this is a perfect transition just to talk about an exemplar, which is currently, which I'm currently working on. Uh, Where I live in northern Montgomery County, uh, northern Bucks County, southern Lehigh County, and eastern Pennsylvania, there's a real housing crisis for for seniors. And uh, what's really interesting is that this is the first time since Franklin Roosevelt enacted Social Security that in this area, the average price of a one-bedroom apartment per month exceeds the the average Social Security payment. So therefore, these seniors, unless there's two in a family or more, are priced out of apartments. And we're finding that so many are getting evicted with nowhere to go. And it really is a crime. And what we're finding is that 40% of seniors in Pennsylvania or people approaching being a senior, 65 approaching it, have no plans for retirement. They don't have a pension. They don't have a 401k or a 403b. They're going to be totally dependent on Social Security. When we took a deep dive into why these individuals did not have retirement plans, one of the big variables was student debt. They spent their money paying off their student debt, oftentimes into their 40s and 50s, and therefore, we're never able to save for retirement. And now they're going to retire hoping to live on $1,700 a month in Social Security when the rent for their apartment is $1,700. It's going to be, you know, it, it, the, the next 10 years are really, it's going to be challenging with all the evictions for, and, and, a, and a society is judged by how it treats its senior population. And I just really worry about what the next 10 years are going to bring. I do too. Totally agree there. Uh, we've got like 45 seconds. You, you okay for doing one more, maybe 10 more minutes and we'll wrap it up. I'll be mindful of your time or do you want to wrap it up now? Yeah. Uh, can, is it okay to wrap it up now and then maybe do it again in a couple of weeks? Yeah. 
Okay, thank you so much, uh, Stephen. Dr. Karp, is there anything you'd like to say? Where can people find you if they like what you said today? Uh, if any any uh, comments to me, just go to the DeSales University website, D-E-S-A-L-E-S, and uh, search for physical therapy, and you'll find my contact information. Thank you so much, Stephen. Dr. Karp, I appreciate the discussion. We'll follow up and catch up in a couple weeks or a few months. We'll do it again. Thank you for listening to Necessary Illusions. I also want to thank my special guest, Dr. Stephen Karp, Steve, for a great discussion on healthcare, education, poverty, and society, among many other topics. Again, I am your host, MC Squared. I'm out.